Well, it's great to be here. Counted a great privilege to uh, be in the pulpit of my friend Sunder uh, for uh, the years before I was in London. And by the way, hello from your brothers and sisters at West London Alliance. I was on staff at Bayview Glen Church. I uh, got on to into that happy position just about the same time that uh, Sunder uh, joined the pastoral staff here. And we met up with each other and have been good friends ever since that back in 1982. Any of you remembers back then. And it's a great privilege for me to be parachuted into the middle of your study of the book of Romans. And uh, here we find ourselves in the very fascinating chapter of Romans 7. If you have your Bible, you might turn there uh, with me to Romans chapter 7. Uh, this is a fascinating section of a very important part of the New Testament for a number of reasons. And some of you would know that one of the reasons it's so interesting and exciting is the controversy that surrounds the second half. Actually, the last 12 verses of uh, Romans chapter 7 are very controversial, always have been. And I want to give you a little sample of that uh, so that I can say that there's far more to chapter 7 than just the debate about what in the world the last 12 verses mean. But let's jump in at verses 15 to 20 and get a feel for the controversy of Romans 7. Here, Paul says, Romans 7:15, for what I am doing, I do not understand For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul wrote these words to a group of Christians who were living in the city of Rome in his day. And the letter has been with us as part of the New Testament ever since. And ever since, there have been people scratching their heads saying, what in the world is he talking about there? And here's the problem, that there are some things being said that a non-Christian could never say. For example, I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. And with Paul's use of the words I and me and myself, it seems really clear that he's talking about himself. He says things that a non-Christian could never say. But the problem is that at the same time, he says things that a Christian should never say, that a Christian should never say. For example, he says, I know nothing good dwells in me and some other things that are very, very contradictory to what he has said about the whole point of being a Christian in the previous chapter, chapter six, and what he'll say again in the following chapter, what we call chapter eight. So what we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is a controversy. Isn't this exciting? Well, it is exciting. And if you're interested in understanding what's being said and then applying it to your life, you can't help but get interested in the debate that has been raging in some places for a long, long time. Let me give you a brief history of the controversy so you can get a feel for how people have come down on various sides of this issue. For about 300 years after the letter first arrived in the mail, it was generally understood by Christians everywhere that this section of Romans 7 was a description of an unregenerate person, a non-born-again person. seemed obvious to the first readers of the letter that Paul was not talking about himself, even though he said, I and me and myself. It was, it, was, it was an impersonation he was doing of a person who hadn't been born again. That's what everyone seemed to think for about 300 years. And then in the 400s, along came the brilliant man Augustine. And Augustine thought differently about a lot of things, and he thought differently about Romans 7, came up with a brilliant idea that it wasn't just a description of an unregenerate person, but that these troublesome words were also 
also a description of a born-again person, of a regenerate person. And so for a long time after that, there were these two views, what everybody used to think and what Augustine thinks. And a thousand years passed. And then the Reformation broke out in Europe. And Martin Luther and John Calvin, among other leaders of the Reformation, hardened the position and came up with the idea that these troublesome verses in Romans chapter 7 were actually a description of only a regenerate person. They looked at certain phrases and thought, well, it's obvious that no non-Christian could ever be even troubled about these things. It was obvious to Martin Luther and to John Calvin that this was a description of, uh, that, that only, uh, of a regenerate person, uh, only a regenerate person could describe himself this way. And then along came someone we call Arminius. And Arminius was a Calvinist scholar who disagreed with John Calvin on two points from Romans. And Romans 7 was the first of the two. And Arminius disagreed with Calvin and Luther and took his followers back to the early church position, back across the net to the other side. Arminius said, no, 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 this is a description of a non-Christian. So Paul is impersonating someone that he is not, though he uses I and me and myself to do so. And then a few hundred more years went by. Are you losing track? Are you getting dizzy? In the, in the 1800s, the holiness movement, which, which uh, made a big deal about how possible it was to live free from sin. And, and then later on, the Keswick movement, which is really part of the 20th century and, and had a whole notion about the victorious Christian life and the power that we have over sin, which all is true, of course. You know that from Romans chapter 6. Uh, the holiness movement came up with the view that this is actually a description of a regenerate person, but before he really got a hang of how to live the Christian life, before he got filled with the Spirit, or before he got uh, the second blessing, or before he got into the victorious Christian life. It was, it was Paul in the early days. It was Paul in the early days of his Christianity. Hmm. And if that's not complicated enough, there's one other view, which is a kind of a personal favorite of mine, because it comes from a person who's been very influential in my life through his writings. And that's the Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, settled down in London, England from 1939 on into the 60s and all through the, the, the middle decades of the 20th century, taught the Bible, taught Romans, got to Romans 7 and really stirred things up by coming up with yet another view which uh, is that, that Romans 7 is describing neither an unregenerate person or a regenerate person. He said it's not either. Well, then what could it be? Well, he says it's a description of a person in the very act of being regenerated. This is a description of how the law converts somebody. And no one had ever thought of that before, it seems. But uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' opinion carries a lot of weight with me, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of attracted to that. And uh, anyway, here's just one more way of looking at these troublesome words. Well, let's be careful with what we do, because it was Martin Lloyd-Jones again who, who said on the same subject of Romans chapter 7, he was a, a Welshman, so pardon his accent, he said, anyone who approaches this section without fear and trembling is not really fit to expound scripture at all. So a little fear and trembling goes a long way here. And we should remember that. We should also take note that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great scholar, a great preacher, uh, said that any opinion that anyone comes to about these difficult 12 verses must be arrived at by an understanding of the previous 13. So before we jump into verses 14 to 25 and say, aha, obviously this is right and that's wrong, which we would do with fear and trembling, we should be, we should be clear on what verses 1 to 13 is talking about. And I would like us to emphasize verses 1 to 13, not only because it will help us to understand as best we can, the controversy of the second half of the chapter. But because verses 1 to 13 is so much 
about the more fascinating point than any opinion taken on the controversy. The fascinating point of Romans 7, 1 to 13 is really the fascinating thing about the whole letter, which is what an amazing thing it is to be regenerate. What an amazing thing it is to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Unique in all the world. A difference made in your life that no, else, no other way can, can you experience. So let's look at Romans 7, verses 1 to 13. Verses 1 to 6 in particular. This will set you up to jump into the controversy if that's of interest to you. It'll help you to steer right past the controversy to chapter 8 if that sounds better. And it will help you to appreciate this great thing that has gone on in the lives of many of us becoming followers of Christ and experiencing the difference that only Jesus can make in a life. Well, just to back up a little bit to get a run at Romans 7, we need to think about Romans 6. Maybe you remember uh, Pastor Christian teaching you this. Romans 6, I think we could agree, is a chapter which explains the difference it makes to become a real Christian. The difference that regeneration can make in a person's life. Particularly the difference it makes in our lives by changing our relationship to sin. That's what Romans 6 is about. It's about how becoming a Christian changes our relationship to sin. Paul explains in Romans chapter 6 that once you're a Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin. The slavery that we lived in is over now. The slavery has been abolished. We're no longer slaves to sin for the simple reason that we have become, through our union with Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. And so this is a huge difference in our lives. And it raises an important question in our lives, which all of us should be very determined to answer. It's the question that can be called the Peter Parker question, if any of you know who Peter Parker is. Peter Parker was that nice young man who went to the museum one day, got bitten by a spider that turned out to be radioactive, went home, felt terrible, had a lousy sleep, and in the morning woke up feeling better than ever. And and what he needed to know, I mean, what was really important for him to know the next morning was why he felt so much better. What was different in his life? And what happens when you go like this? Peter Parker, see, became Spider-Man. And Spider-Man was a, just an ordinary fellow who had this extraordinary experience. He'd gotten bitten by a spider that turned out to be radioactive. It was the most happy genetic change. And in the morning, he woke up with a whole new set of powers and abilities. And wouldn't it have been tragic if he never thought to ask the, the Peter Parker question, if he never bothered discovering what was different? He could, you know, I mean, he would have wasted the opportunity to be an extraordinary crime fighter and, and to meet up with that nice girl. And there were so many things that came out of discovering the difference that that spider had made. Well, we're in the same sort of position. And Paul the Apostle explains that in Romans chapter 6, that now that we're in Christ, we have become free from our enslavement to sin. And that's because we become dead to sin and alive to God. And what Romans 6 shows kind of strangely is that under some circumstances, death can be kind of good news. Now, we don't usually associate the idea of death with good news. Often the idea of death is a, a horrifying thing. And it's often it's a tragic thing and often it's a very, very sad thing. But there are some circumstances in which death isn't so bad after all. In fact, that death can be a, a good thing. And one of the situations you might find yourself in that makes death good news is slavery. This is what Paul was saying as an analogy in Romans chapter six. There's a number of ways in which death can be good news for a slave. Like, for example, if it's the slave master who does the dying, that can be good for a slave. You know, death enters into his reality, but it's the slave master that dies. And that could be good. 
What difference death makes often is determined by who does the dying. And in any relationship between any two people where death enters in, it's a very significant thing to determine who it is that's going to do the dying. Ever heard of George Patton? World War II people. George Patton was an American general, famous for the fact that he was a strategic genius and also he was kind of a crazy guy. And he said crazy things, or at least George C. Scott did when he was impersonating Patton in that movie. At one point, Patton, or maybe it was just George C. Scott, stands up in front of his troops before a big battle. And he says sort of surprisingly, I'm not asking you to die for your country. Dying for your country is not the point. The point is to get your enemies to die for their country. (laughs) That's a a policy that the soldiers could get their minds around. Yeah, let's get the other guys to die. This would be one way in which death could be good news. There's another way in which death can be good news. And that is for a slave, I mean. You do the dying, but with an understanding that after you die, you come back to life again. See, then you get free from slavery by doing the dying. But you come to life afterwards, free. That was the essence of those songs from the American South that we call Negro spirituals. At least that's what they used to be called. Swing low, sweet chariot. Michael, row your boat ashore. These are the songs that the slaves in the American South were singing as they longed to be with Jesus in heaven. And they were longing for death in doing so. Swing low, sweet chariot. Come on down, chariot, and bring me to the sweet places. Swing low, come and get me. It was a death wish built on the belief in life after death. So that's the second way in which you know, dying isn't so bad. You could be free from your enslavement to sin, and you could get on with a whole new life. Well, Romans 6 is all about our relationship to sin. Now, Romans 7 is like it, but it's about our relationship to the law. And the very same things we learned in Romans 6 about how death isn't so bad show up in Romans chapter 7 in an analogy, which I would like to explain to you this morning, if I can. I'll make four statements. If you're the sort of person who takes notes, you might want to write these statements down. And they will show you from verses 1 to 6, not only what to make of chapter 7, but more importantly, what to make of your relationship to God and some of the ways in which it's just really, really good news, really, really gospel to be a follower of Christ. Now, let's look. Romans 7, verses 1 to 2 starts, of course. And Paul says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Or as long as she lives, he could have said, because he goes on to say, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. We'll stop right there. And here's the first statement that we should understand in order to understand Romans 7. Any relationship with God other than a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ is like an unhappy marriage in which the blame is always all ours and we are the ones who deserve to die. Let me explain. Every one of us is in a relationship to God, whether we know it or not, because God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. There's no such thing as living apart from God. Even if you, on principle, refuse to believe in God, even if you're a card-carrying atheist, you have a relationship with God. That's how you exist. But any relationship with God other than the sort of relationship that Romans is about, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, can be compared to an unhappy marriage. But one of the unhappy marriages in which all the blame is on the one side, and that would be on our side, all the blame is all ours. And what I want you to see from Romans chapter 7 
and from the Bible in general, is that that being the case, us being the guilty spouse in an unhappy marriage, we are the ones who deserve to die. Now, as far as the blame being all ours, this is the message of the Bible. It's the message of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel had the best shot at a good relationship to God on their own. And it was called the covenant, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And it wasn't going very well, even though they had the, the highest advantage of any group of people in the world. In the days of Jeremiah, God spoke to them about how badly the relationship was going and how much they needed a new relationship instead. A relationship which only would be experienced when Jesus Christ came into the world. Here's how it goes from Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Here's God saying, my relationship to Israel was like a marriage and I was like the husband what kind of husband was God? Well, perfect. Okay, so try to imagine that, a marriage in which the husband is perfect. God says, this is what my relationship to Israel was like. I was like a husband to them, and it was perfect. And the marriage did not go well. And all the blame was on the other side, because Israel kept breaking the covenant. Israel kept being unfaithful. And that was the best relationship that anyone had ever experienced with God. And it wasn't a very good relationship, because it was made outside of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the blame is all on the side of the person who is in a relationship with God, other than the kind of relationship you can get into with Christ. And that being the case, it's, it's we who deserve to die. Now, what about that? What about dying because of a bad marriage? Well, what you need to remember is that in the Bible and in Bible times, adultery was a capital offense. It was a, it was a, a crime, the penalty of which was death. And that's because, that may sound extreme or strange, but it's not all that strange if you get into the mindset of the, of the Bible. That's because adultery was seen as an act of war on society. The household is the basic cell of society, and the marriage is the nucleus of the cell. And adultery splits the atom. Adultery breaks apart the nucleus. It divides the man and the woman. So it's like it's blowing up society. It's, a, it's an act of aggression. It's an act of violence against society. So in the Bible days, the state took a very strong stand against it and treated adulterers the way they would have treated invaders, the way they would have treated a, a marauding army, declare war on the enemy before he destroys your society. So unfaithfulness to a marriage vow in the Old Testament was a, a, a penalty, carried a, the death penalty. And so as the, as the people in the marriage analogy who are guilty of the unfaithfulness, we are the ones who should do the dying. And that's what Paul wants us to understand, that when death enters in the marriage, the people who are in this marriage are, 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 are no longer bound and what we saw in Romans 6 is true in Romans 7. Sometimes death isn't all that bad compared to some ways of living. Death isn't all that bad. This is the analogy that we found in Romans 6 and we see it again in Romans 7. The point is that metaphorically speaking, death can be good news to some people like slaves or like really unhappily married people. Now. If death comes as good news because of the state of your marriage, there's two ways in which it can be good news. We saw this in Romans 6. Here we go again in Romans 7. Two ways in which death can be good news for married people. On the one hand, it can be good news if the person you're married to does the dying, right? You can get out of this thing if only the person would keel over. This isn't the way you usually talk about these things, but you can imagine it being the case. 
That was the case in the, in the story of Abigail in the Old Testament. Remember Abigail, lovely woman, married to a really creepy guy. And then she met David, and she couldn't help but thinking, well, I'd rather have him as a husband. And then what do you know? Her, her creepy husband dies. And does she go into deep grieving? No, because this freed her up to be married to David. It seemed like a major upgrade. So it was, it was good news because the, the bad man that she was married died. And you'll remember the, um, you remember the very sensitive song that the Dixie Chicks sang about a guy named Earl. Same point if you're a country and western fan. If you're not, forget I said that. Okay, so <clears throat> another way in which death can be good news to an unhappily married person not to make light of something which in actual real life would be a, a major personal tragedy, but let's be frank about it. Another way in which death could be good news for a miserably married person is for that miserably married person to do the dying, especially if there's some sort of hope of getting alive again. If there was a hope of resurrection, then dying would perhaps be better than being in a really bad marriage. This occurs to people. It occurred to an American woman named Nancy Astor, who went to England, married a nobleman, became Lady Astor, uh, got elected to Parliament in Britain, though she was an American, and met up with Winston Churchill, who she really disliked. And one day, uh, Lady Nancy Astor said to Winston Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd put poison in your coffee. She was an American, so she said it like that. She said, I'd put poison in your coffee. And he said... Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink it. (laughs) Sometimes death can be a preferred alternative, especially if there's a hope of coming to life again afterwards. So think of that lovely young woman, Juliet. And life was going along swimmingly for Juliet until she came home one day and found out that her parents had decided that she was engaged to some guy named Paris, really creepy old guy. She didn't want to marry him at all. So she went and talked to her pastor, who was a man named Friar Lawrence. And Friar Lawrence was a very impressive guy because, well, because he was really religious and he was bald. That's a powerful combination. So she says to Friar Lawrence, help. And he had this chemistry set, this really cool stuff that he could mix together. And he gave her something to drink, which would which would kill her, but only for a while, make her sort of temporarily dead. And it seemed like a great idea because she could break off the engagement for the very legitimate reason of having died recently. And then, you know, when the death thing wore off, she'd come to life and run off and marry Romeo. It seemed like a great plan. So she went for it and you know, it didn't work out, but it could have. It would have been great if it had, you know, dying would be a way of getting free of an unhappy relationship and then free you up to enter into a new one. Now, this is what Paul wants us to understand about ourselves as followers of Christ. He says an unhappily married woman might especially not mind being the one who dies if she has some way of coming back to life after she dies. And this is what we see in Romans seven. So let's jump back into verse two and make our way forward to verse four. Paul says, if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress. So she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, 
You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Paul is using an analogy to help us to understand our relationship to God. And here comes a complication. The complication has to do with who does the dying. Paul wants us to see that there's two answers to that question. So he wants us to see that in any relationship with God, other than a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, there's two senses in which some dying makes everything different. And here's the second point, then. This would be something to write down if you're a note taker. Becoming a Christian casts us in the double role of the widow who's free to remarry and the wife who dies. There's two ways in which we see death entering into an old relationship with God, which needs to be terminated so that we can get into a new relationship with God. On the one hand, we can see that the husband dies if we consider ourselves to be in a relationship with God through a law by which we earn our own approval with God. We need to die to that. The law needs to die. We need to die in regard to the law. The law needs to die in a sense. So it's like the husband dies and we're free from the law. But on the other hand, it's we who do the dying which is to say that life in Christ is so entirely new that the life you were living before needs to come to an end. There needs to be a death to the old life so that you can begin to live a new life. It's a way of looking at becoming a Christian that shows us to be the ones who die. Becoming a Christian casts us in a double role. We are, in a sense, the widow who's free to remarry. We're, in a sense, the wife who dies, but comes to life again so that she can remarry. Either way. The unhappily married person, that's us in a relationship with God that's not working, can get into a relationship with God that really does work. But we would be left with the Peter Parker question. You know, what difference does it make to come into this new sort of relationship to God, which you get to through faith in Jesus Christ? And Romans 7, 4, which we stopped reading before we got to the last nine words, gives the answer to the question of what difference it makes to be joined to God through Christ. So Romans 7, 4 again says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Here it is, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What difference does it make to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What difference does it make to your relationship to God if your relationship to God is based on your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, here's the third statement. Once we are truly remarried to Christ, that is, once we're into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, We become able to bear fruit for God. Those are words out of Romans 7, 4. That's the difference. We become able to bear fruit for God. Now, the idea of bearing fruit isn't new in Romans. It came up in Romans 6, although you might not have seen it, depending on what translation we're using. In Romans 6, 21, Paul the Apostle asks the question about our old life. What benefit, he says, were you then deriving from those things of which you are now ashamed? That's Romans 6.21. But literally what he says is, therefore, what fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? And he's building up to Romans 6.23 in which he says the wages of sin is death. So he says any relationship with God, apart from a relationship to God through Jesus Christ, is like a marriage. And the children that you bear, the fruit of the marriage is death. There's death to be experienced by anybody who's in any kind of relationship with God other than this kind of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because it always ends up in failure. It always ends up in death. But Christ is our life. He is the life. And if you're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then the fruit that your marriage, so to speak, your relationship with bear, is the fruit of life. That's the children produced by the relationship, this marriage that we have going on with Jesus Christ. And one way of understanding that fruit is to understand it in every case as Christ-like character. We'll see that in Romans chapter 8. 
that our destiny, our predestiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And God gets us to our destiny by uniting us to Christ. And then because we're married to Christ, so to speak, because the old marriage, so to speak, is over and we have a new marriage this time to Jesus Christ, we begin to bear fruit. And the fruit is the character of Christ in our lives. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Goodness and righteousness and truth begin to be born in us. They begin to show up in our lives as the fruit or the result of our union with Christ. And it's the same thing when Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit. This is the children. This is the offspring of the relationship that is possible to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Someone would want to say under the subject of fruit, well, I thought fruit had to do with leading people to Christ. I thought the fruitful Christian life was one in which we're reaching out to other people and bringing them into the kingdom. And that's true, and that's not anything different, because you can see it this way. When we have the privilege of leading someone to Christ, we are seeing the character of Christ born in their lives and showing up in their lives as they receive from Christ the power to become Christ-like. So it's the same thing, whether it's in your own heart or whether it's in the heart of the people you impact, it's the character of Christ showing up in humanity. That's how it's fruit in both cases. Now, one more verse, one more thought. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we are bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We serve in newness of the Spirit. Here's the fourth point. Remarried to Christ, so to speak, we're able to serve in newness of the Spirit, which is to say the big deal about this new covenant this new relationship to God possible through faith in Christ, the big deal is that there's a change of life and a change of heart produced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The gift that Christ gives us, or say it another way, the gift that God gives us when we come to Christ is the Spirit of Christ living in our hearts. And everything that needs to happen begins to happen because the Holy Spirit makes it happen within us. And you see that if you read the details, for example, the details of Romans. It's the spirit of Christ within us that bears the fruit of Christ likeness. For example, Romans 5, 5. Where does the love of God come from? Paul says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The love of Christ in us comes from the Holy Spirit of Christ working in us. So does the joy and so does the peace. Look at how Romans 15 words it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you'll abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit within us. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ within us that bears the fruit, that makes it happen. That's why Paul says, be filled with the spirit. And just on that, you know, you know where he says that? He says that to the Ephesians in chapter five. And just before he says, be filled with the spirit, he says, don't be drunk with wine. And that's not like he's, he's going to say something positive, be filled with the spirit. So he tries to balance it by saying something negative. Oh, by the way, don't get drunk. But he says it in order for us to understand. He says, don't be drinking so much wine that the alcohol begins to change how you speak and how you walk. Don't get drunk with wine. But be so filled with the Holy Spirit that his influence upon you causes you to walk differently and talk differently and see differently. There's a, an analogy between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. It's the Spirit who changes our behavior, that changes our walk, that changes our talk to make us more and more like Christ. 
And that's what verses one to six explain about this marvelous thing called being a follower of Christ or being regenerated. And with that in mind, we're ready to kind of flip through the rest of the chapter. Let me show you how to do it. We come to verse seven and there's a question. Paul asked the question, what should we say then? Is the law sin? That was the raging question his day. Is the law sin? And the answer is very plain in verses seven to twelve. On the contrary, I wouldn't come to no sin except through the law. So then the law is holy and the commandments holy and righteous and good. So the law is not sin. The law shows me my sin. And then comes the second question in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? You say the law is not sin, but didn't it do the same thing that sin did? Didn't it kill me? Didn't the law kill me? Didn't that which is good become a cause of death for me? And the answer comes in the controversial verses 13 to 25. The answer to the question is this. May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly, would become utterly sinful. The law helps me to understand how sinful sin is. And then we launch out into this problematic part of the chapter. And you can see, I think, from this run at it, how whatever position you take in the controversy, if you take a position at all, it still works the same way for all of us. If you take the view of Luther and Calvin, that this is Paul describing his own experience from the inside out, you can say, well, here's the ongoing function of the law in the life of a Christian. Over and over again, the law of God shows me how uh, sinful the sin that remains in me is. And it will always show me how sinful sin is so that I'll always remember how much I need Jesus. That would be the Lutheran Calvin position. If you want to go to the other side of the court and take the position of Arminius, you'd say, and here follows in verses 13 to 25, an explanation of how the law shows a person without a personal relationship with Christ, how much he really needs Christ, which is really showing the same thing, but showing it to a different person. And I'll leave you to sort out what the holiness movement and what Martin Lloyd-Jones would understand verses 13 to 25 to say. But before you, said a lot of, before you start sorting out any of that, let me leave you with a question. And we'll end this way today. Two practical questions, one for each of you this morning. You sort out which of the questions you should be left with. Here's the first practical question to end Romans 7 on. Have you been remarried, so to speak, to Jesus Christ? That's a question for some of you to go away with. Have you died to your old relationship with God, whatever it was, so that you are free to enter into a new relationship with God, that's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to be if you haven't? Can you see how you would need what you would need to do to to do so if you haven't? You know, considering our relationship to Jesus Christ, like marriage, helps us to understand that the essence of it is a commitment of trust, because that's what marriage is, right? A commitment of trust, and entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is like that. You know that He's altogether trustworthy. So you entrust yourself to him. That's why it's a relationship of faith, because the essence of faith is trust. Trusting enough to love, honor, and obey. It's like a marriage. It's a covenant. So that's a question for some of you. Have you been remarried to Christ? And if you have not, oh, I invite you, I implore you, I urge you to take seriously this offer of a whole new life, of this major upgrade, of this happily ever after experience of having Christ as your husband, so to speak. And that's a question for many of you this morning. Here's a question for others. Will you be filled with the Spirit? If you have been married to Christ, if he is like a husband to you, 
then will you be filled with the Spirit? Will you receive from Him more and more of the influence of His Spirit? Which is to say, will you gladly open your mind and your heart and your whole life to this wonderful husband of yours, so to speak? Will you open your heart and your mind and your whole life to the influence of the Holy Spirit of Christ so that you can be fruitful, so that your marriage will be fruitful, so that the character of Christ will show up in your mind and your heart and your whole life and through your life into the lives and the hearts and the minds of the people that you influence. If you have been married to Christ, so to speak, if you are a follower of Christ, then this is the challenge to be left with. With all this possibility before us, will you be filled with the Spirit? We have an opportunity to sing a couple more songs as we wind down our time. And and the, the singing of the songs with the lyrics that are given to us give us each an opportunity to, to mull over the questions of being married to Christ and being filled with the Spirit. And in your heart, as you sing, to say yes to the Lord and to invite him to be everything he means to be to you. May God bless you as we worship him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that you'll lead us in a fit and a proper application of it and in obedience to Christ and all the fruit, all the benefit, all the, all the, the, the produce that comes from being so well attached to such a wonderful Lord and Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So may the God of hope, who raised up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through his Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you.